everyone, they, uh, they used to just meet, you know, monthly or quarterly and just share cases and just teach each other. There was no cope. There was no guarantee or no requirements. But they just taught each other different things. And I think that that's that was, not real education, Mike. You know that because it's not approved. Well, that's what I'm saying. It was probably so. Don't you think that was probably so much better? A bunch of guys sitting around just telling each other about what they're truly experiencing and then helping each other with what they don't understand rather than approved education um, preached at you. Well, all of the, the, that can't exist today. I mean, it, it can exist, but it has to exist in, people aren't going to devote the time to that because we've made it like, okay, I've got to do this many hours sitting in a classroom doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and if it's not that, I'm not going to devote the time to sit down and have a philosophical conversation about patient management on glaucoma with one of my buddies in a real, and maybe not even one of my buddies, but one of my colleagues in a way that's, that's really back and forth as opposed to, hey, Mike, you got to do this and you got to do that. It's really a challenge. It is. And, we, and as a culture, maybe not even a culture, but as a profession, the education that we deliver um, people don't even know how to respond in those scenarios. If you were to sit there and ask in your lecture, hey, Mick, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You might get Mick to say something. Maybe. In the, in the way that we're delivering lectures now. So when do you think that, if you're, if you're talking about your granddaddy, what, when did that change? When did that, when did that change? Was it a slow evolution, you think? Hello and welcome to the Griswold Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Mick Kling and Dr. Mike Rothschild about the future of education and what we want to be thinking about as it relates to our virtual and live events. Please enjoy our conversation. It was a lot of fun for me. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends, and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. What the, when did that change? When did that, when did that change? Was it a slow evolution, you think? I don't know when it changed. I think that it just sort of eroded over time. Hmm. I, I suspect that it changed when the when the when the therapeutic bills started to happen and the state boards became more clear about what was required for CE credit. I'm sure it became it being you know COPE became involved and so it became a much more structured experience. My my deal with the whole education the the way it's happening now is just the way it's being delivered. And I'm not talking virtually versus in person, but it's the format of the hour long you know, 50 minute talk that you basically are getting lectured to. And it's just not how we typically learn. And then you get into a two hour meeting and it's even more time to get distracted and look at your phone and not pay attention. 
and a lot of the education, all the, a lot of the content is just kind of rehashed. And so it's, um, and some of that is our profession doesn't move, although things change quickly, it doesn't move so quickly that you're, you know, every year you're not going to get brand new knowledge. Some of this glaucoma education, for instance, is the same year after year. So I think the way we consume knowledge is very different. We're much more, we have much shorter attention spans. We like videos, we like interaction, and that's not the way we deliver it typically. It's, uh, it's also a challenge because in terms of you said, I don't know if you said regurgitate, but where you're reusing stuff. And, and part of the reason that happens is if somebody puts, you know, 15 hours into developing this beautiful PowerPoint where all the transitions work well and everything, you know, the, it, it makes this OCT just jump off the page and it's really great. Like for what you get compensated for as a lecturer, it's happy to, you're happy to do it, but you got to use that content over and over and over again. So you know, am I going to devote 15 hours of content every single time I come to a, a meeting to, to develop, you know, for every single hour of stuff I'm delivering? I couldn't do it. You wouldn't be worth yeah. anybody's time. Well, listen, the whole, the whole compensation to a speaker for the time that they deliver is a co completely different conversation and you know think about how much time you put into some of your, your lectures are amazing and the depth of the, of the knowledge and the content that you put into this is nowhere nowhere do you get close to being remunerated what you've put into this mm, from thanks. a time standpoint you could go into an exam room and oh, generate yeah. way more money right um, and so most of us I think do this because we love teaching right. we love being educators we love helping our colleagues and it's not about the money. But when you add the fact that we're doing it for practically free and then throw on a bunch of restrictions about how we do it, when we do it, how long it can be, what the content is about, it just creates a it creates a um, environment for a speaker that isn't really creative. It doesn't allow us to like think of new ways to deliver knowledge to, to the profession. So then I think that kind of brings me to what I was wanting to talk to you about because I think there is this opportunity during COVID or post-COVID to say, you know, my thought about it is that we've been for so long with education, states have gotten away with saying this has to be live, it has to follow X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. rules, to going to say, well, now we can do education virtually. And I don't know about you, but I can get a lot. Probably as much, not all, not always. Like if you get a, a good speaker that knows how to engage an audience, then I think that's not not entirely the case. But virtually, if you want to disseminate information and I want to be lectured to, I can get that information virtually just as well as I can get it sitting in a classroom. So I think it's gonna you're gonna have a hard argument to make. I think state boards are gonna have a hard argument to make to say we are now going to eliminate this flexibility that you've had mm -hmm. to get education virtually because I think as a, if I, if I'm an optometrist saying that's, that's kind of on the outside, it's like, look, I'm not going to listen to the state board. I'm going to, you know, you're just a hindrance to me. You're just a money grab, right? If, if, if I said that, I think that, that that would be a legitimate argument in a, in a court of law to be able to say, look for, for 18 months, it was okay to get education virtually. And I was still safe to the public. Now I'm not safe to the public mm -hmm. if I don't get education yeah. live. What do you think about that? And, and are, there, are there conversations going on with big meetings to say, when we develop, de deliver content in person, we're going to deliver it different. It's going to be different. 
Yeah, you know, so a couple thoughts that I had when you were saying that. One is I do think it's going to be very difficult for the state boards to reverse this, um, the flexibility that they've offered us to take to get education virtually because I think it's going to be a very difficult argument for them to try to prove that for some reason being in person we learn more. I don't think that's true. Now, is it easy to get distracted with, you know, multitasking while you've got a CE course going on in the background? Of course, I know that that does happen. Um, but we can be easily, as easily distracted in a classroom setting if you've got your cell phone in front of you. So I think it's going to be a hard argument. What I suspect is going to happen is there may be a limit to the number of hours that you can take virtually. They may say, listen, you need to take uh, X number of hours live in a classroom because it's just the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And for them to just say, okay, from now on, you don't ever have to go to a classroom. I, I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there will always be people that will never go to a meeting and there will always be people that always want to go to meetings. So I, I think that there could be some impact on the attendance uh, for live meetings, but I think the world has changed. Yeah. And just like companies are not always going to put their executives on a plane to go have a face-to-face -face meeting, they're going to do some remote negotiating. I think we're going to see that uh, almost like a, a hybrid. Um, but to answer your question about what are these big meetings doing, you know, as you know, I sit on the conference advisory board for Vision Expo, and um, we really haven't had any conversations about what's next. Mm. You know, I think they're focus right now is to continue to get back into the physical space of having live events. You know, we've got um, Expo West coming up in Vegas and you know, we're planning on it being a big meeting as usual. Um, there has been some conversation about how do you make a live event also virtual simultaneously. Yep. Yep. The cost, to my understanding, the cost of doing that is, is quite a heavy lift. So could you imagine every classroom you walked into, you had a video camera and a video feed that was being sent to the Internet so somebody could actually be sitting at home. I, I just feel like that's going to be cost prohibitive. So I don't know how the hybrid is going to happen where you have both, both offerings of a live and simultaneous uh, uh, broadcast event. Uh, but I do think, circling back, I think the state boards are going to have to allow virtual to continue. I just don't see it any other way. Well, I think the other the other thing, I'll even propose this for Vision Expo, would be, you know, I was talking to my chiropractor friend about this, because I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time, even before the pandemic. I, I was talking to state associations about having mechanisms in place to be able to do virtual or, or online um, continuing education. And, um, and this kind of thrust like it did for a lot of things it thrust everything right in front but i would propose you know what what the chiropractors have that's different than us is they can manipulate each other right like i could say here's a new technique to do this and like you could lay down on a table and i could manipulate you right like and and that's not a real you don't have to have a this i have to say this right because i don't want to belittle chiropractors, right? But you wouldn't necessarily have to have the disease mm -hmm. in order for me to manipulate you right. and, and not cause harm. In our profession, you know, um, if there's very few things, like I can't cut a chalazin off your lid unless you have a chalazin, right? Mm -hmm. I can't, um, 
yeah, yeah, I could, we could do dilation irrigation. We could do some other techniques um, in wet labs. But but there's, you know, I think there's got to be more. Okay, you want to fit a scleral lens? We're going to fit it on each other. We're going to troubleshoot it. This is what happens. This is the technology. We're going to have an OCT in here. We're going to have a technician mm-hmm. that we're going to pay that's going to rattle off those OCTs, right? And maybe even a technician that's going to put on the scleral lens for you. Maybe it's beyond the just initial like here's how you handle a scleral lens to get the doctors comfortable with doing it. But it's like now we're to the point where we're going to have four or five or six patients where they're complex cases. Okay, how are we going to do this? Boom, 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 boom. And and doctors get to learn from that. Or maybe we, we present cases where you actually can figure out ways to make it interactive. You've got a glaucoma patient. Okay, and it's almost like a storybook, right? Like one of those old storybooks where you pick choice A or you pick mm-hmm. choice B, but you get to learn from the decision. So let's say you, you know, we have this glaucoma patient, we get the entire case history in, in the audience. We get to choose, right, which path we're gonna we're gonna select and see how that outcome impacts like the outcome. Oh, if we had done this here, this is what happened. Like that that's complex thinking, but it's something that doesn't really it can't be done like the hands-on and then this this idea sharing that that mike was talking about before isn't done well virtually Mm -hmm. so then i think you can easily justify not only from a requirement standpoint having something in person from a state board but like if i'm choosing if if even if i have the choice to say i could do all my stuff virtually or i could do all the hands on dude i'm taking the hands on all day long yep. because i learn so much more yep. that's how we've got to be thinking about education and to your point earlier and to mike's point you know our mechanisms aren't really well in play for giving credit to that education mm-hmm. right but I would argue that that's probably every bit as important and valuable. Yeah, you know your 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 comment about having more sort of um, on-site lab-oriented educational experiences is huge because we here at Expo we have uh, some of those courses, I noticed Claire that. Lynn's courses, mm-hmm. um, and um, I think I'll have to go look at the numbers, but I think those are very well attended. People do want that. They want to be able to, to, to learn something. You know, some people just need CE. Sure. Let's, let's face yeah. it, right? That's sure. okay. But there are many, many practitioners that really want to learn something. I want to take something back to my office that I, that I can actually do and implement. And some of the things that we do require you to learn how to do them, not just listen to somebody rehash you know, their experiences around it. So you know, maybe there's a model where a certain number of hours required are simply just lecture hours and you can get those done virtually but a certain number of them require you to be there but the expectation would be when you're there it's a much more interactive experience Uh, because we as human beings we we love novelty right we love surprises and we that's why ted talks are so popular because they're very short and those ted talk speakers are trained on how to make things surprising and it's what our brain connects with. And so um, we like the fact that there's something I'm not expecting coming up. But when you go into a lecture hall and you kind of know you're going to be there for 50 minutes, you can kind of see literally within the first few seconds, um, you know, kind of what you're into. It made me think of, um, I think it was in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. I might mm-hmm. have the wrong, wrong book, but he talks about how we make these instantaneous judgments about speakers. And well, all people really, but about, yeah, about, about anybody. Yeah, yeah, I think about in our environment when you walk into a lecture hall, you immediately start to size up the person that's going to give the education. And there was a study that they did where 
they had they showed a very short clip of a lecturer with no audio and all it is is you could just see the the lecturer sort of waving his hands and <laughs> presenting for just a few seconds and then they had the audience grade the impact of the effectiveness of that that presenter so then they shortened the clip to about two seconds and did the same thing. So then they again assess the effectiveness based on a two-second clip, no audio, mm. just a person hand motions. And then the students took the entire course for an entire semester live with the professor and graded the performance of that professor and the results were all the same. Wow. So the point is within a second we size up somebody. So when you walk into a classroom and it's not engaging, the speaker isn't delivering well, maybe their body posture isn't right, their tone isn't good, their eye contact isn't good, we immediately turn off and we look down at our phone and we're not learning. But when you take us into an environment where we've got slit lamps set up and we're doing interactive things and it's requiring us to actually physically do something, this changes the game completely. Yeah. So that idea of mixing maybe some virtual education that you can just sit there at your computer and yep. consume it with some higher level requirements could be could be a good way to look at our future uh, delivery yeah well i think um i think on the one hand the the blink analogy um is kind of where we get our our big time lectures right because they're because people like them they're engaging um whether and, and they could be delivering content not nearly as well as somebody who isn't as engaging right but but they're going to get high marks on everything, not just whether or not they were engaging, yeah. but did I learn something? Did I do X, Y, and Z? And it's probably why you know we're, we're probably a beneficial of that. Why we get asked to do other things is because we are sized up quickly and favorably in most cases, right? Yeah. And then that detracts from like these people where you could learn so much from them technically, yeah. but we can't get over the fact that they, they wouldn't present well in a 50-minute session yeah. because we'd size them up too quickly and wouldn't get to, to have any other yeah, yeah, I think it was Aristotle who presented the idea of the, the, the best way to um, uh, communicate, which was you need credibility, hmm. you need emotion, and you need facts. You know, so if you think about the best presentations, there's somebody that you already have mm. that maybe already has a reputation. So you've heard about this person, or you've seen them, so they have a credibility. And then we then they're good at telling stories. In other words, they're connecting with me emotionally. And then the third is they presenting evidence that convinces me that what they're trying to present is um, rooted in logic. Mm. You know, so if you hit all three of those. But not every speaker has the ability to do that or the training to do it. Some, sometimes it's just a matter of learning to become a better speaker. And a lot of the education that gets delivered in, in our profession, I think, is done in a very um, bland, sort of flat way. And it, 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 it creates a, uh, an environment that's not very conducive to learning. Yeah. Mick, thanks for being on. I appreciate the Always conversation. Always my pleasure. Yeah. Let's go get some lunch. Sounds great. Thanks, <laughs> Awesome. Chris. Thanks.